This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. This is Matt Pegas. And this is episode 50, a true milestone here. (laughs) And we are very happy to share this milestone with none other than Jacob Everett, a.k.a. uh, at one point Blaurgeist the uh, editor-in-chief of Apocalypse Confidential, the founder of Apocalypse Confidential, uh, a one-time host of the Elroy Boys podcast, very popular pod, current co-host of uh, Resident Life Enjoyer, which is a, a great pod with just a ton of episodes that feature you know, many people who have been on New Ride, such as Kevin, Brad, uh i i believe uh howling mutant i I could be Mm. wrong there but um yeah just uh i mean you have a tremendous body of work already and uh we're we're very happy to have you with us jacob i'm happy to be here uh for your big 5-0 episode it's an honor Mm -hmm. Um, how are you guys doing doing well we're great I was uh, just regaling you two off of uh, <laughs> the uh, live recording that um, I had a very uh, interesting and unexpected mushroom trip yesterday, which was uh, enlightening. And <laughs> um, yeah, and I wound up listening to the uh, Art of Darkness episode uh, with Walt Disney and and you, Blauer, you, you Jacob. So uh, yeah, it was episode. a very pleasant end to to the trip it brought it home <laughs> shall we say brought it home yeah. beautiful no yeah that's definitely one of the so i was just on all the connections abound here i was just on art of darkness yesterday for my first appearance on that podcast and um you know they do a great pod over there and but really one of my favorites episodes is that disney episode uh that they do with you yeah that disney one i mean that sort of is a lot of that and the francis bacon one i feel like mm-hmm. it, were are sort of great examples of like the kind of like weirdness that we're into here at Apocalypse Confidential because hmm. it's all about it's like you know have the weird sort of like occulty kind of symbolism shit with like you know Disneyland and like all the like older and anim- like animated cartoons and I animated cartoon I'm repeating myself like an idiot um all the hmm. cartoons and stuff yeah and then you have like all the old weird like sort of like deep state kind of like paranoid kind of stuff so like those are sort of that disney episode is sort of like a perfect microcosm of like what we're into absolutely Absolutely. where it crosses over with art of dark 
as well. And and I was just going to say, uh, Jacob, it's good to speak again, because I think the first time we ever talked was on Robert Stark's podcast. I was just yeah, I was kind of way telling, back in the day. Yeah, way back in the day. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but yet it also does feel like a it different feels timeline. feels like a long ago. Yeah, because you were going by Blower Guys at the time. We mostly talked about like uh, old, like the kind of old bathroom type interior decorating <laughs> pictures. Yeah, that was back when I was doing the Bathis gang thing and like posting yeah, like yeah, yeah. carpeted bathrooms and shit. Yeah. So like definitely a kind di- of so maybe a different uh, incarnation uh, of Jacob Everett slash Blower Guys, but never, but but not more than like two years ago tops. So it's. Yeah, good to speak again in any case. Yeah, for sure. The internet moves at light speed. And um, yeah, we keep cycling through different uh, eras and different incarnations. And uh, we're you know certainly very excited to discuss uh, Apocalypse Confidential, which is something that uh, you founded and debuted around three years ago. Is, is that right, Jacob? Yeah, our debut, actually our sort of, birthday was uh february 23rd um oh wow debuted, we mm-hmm. debuted in 2021 um and so yeah our year our one year anniversary was when russia invaded ukraine <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it was sort of like all right well we definitely are in you know apocalyptic now um yes but mm-hmm. yeah no it's been about yeah we're in our third year right now well you guys should have like the uh the rocky four uh issue or something (laughs) (laughs) the open draco issue um yeah no i mean apocalypse confidential is i mean thank you for you know publishing uh the review of nutcranker by brad kelly that was great i loved it and i've been a fan of apocalypse confidential for a while and one of the reasons why I'm a fan is so like New Right, obviously what we're doing here is we're platforming art that occurs out of the mainstream, not necessarily right wing art, but just art that isn't at home in, you know, the traditional publishing ecosystem or entertainment ecosystem. And I see and I, I bet you'll agree with me, Apocalypse Confidential as a uh, a vehicle a you know a a venue for just that type of writing because i mean this is like yes it could be published in the mainstream certainly but um you know certainly a lot of our guys like arbogast detective wolfman (laughs) crooner uh vn ebert uh, they they're all you know published to uh great uh great claim in apocalypse confidential and uh, other, you know, former guests like Steph, um, he's not a former guest, but Hayden, people who are mm-hmm. like generally in the sphere that I think as we go on in the episode, we've uh, labeled the the weird right. And we'll get into yeah. what we think that means. But uh, yeah, I mean, your your magazine, I would say, is one of the premier vehicles for getting writing and art out there that is not, um, you know, mainstream you know iron sanded down mainstream writing entertainment for sure well we're always sort of to like what do we talk like sort of edgy extrapolations and sort of fringe fascinations and all that kind of shit um i think the way that i kind of look you know this thing of ours you know to use mm-hmm. mafia argot <laughs> is like right. the way that there's like two sort of like 
streams in it. One is dissident and then the other is dissonant, where it's like dissident would be sort of more explicitly political stuff, which has, you know, its place and its purpose. And like, I would, that'd be like, like I am seven, uh, yeah. 1776 mm-hmm. and then make like passage prize is sort of, they, I mean, obviously they have a focus on the art, but also they have their, they have a project and that's yeah. great. But then there, are, I think there are other play venues that are more dissonant, like uh, Apocalypse Confidential, and then like you know maybe Expat, and then a couple other places where it's sort of more about rebelling. You know, maybe we have some implicit politics. I'm not, I'm not going to be like, no, we're not political yeah. at all. Um, you know, we have all of our implicit sort of meta politics, and I think uh, Max managing our managing editor sort of spoke to that very eloquently when he was on um but like our interest is sort of like rebelling against the mainstream because it's sort of well the mainstream is so uh fixated on maintaining a sort of uh unipolarity of just basically like a single voice kind of thing whereas we are interested in sort of you know we present a sort of uh numerous voices some that are like you know we publish like all kinds of people besides like the people that you listed like Arbogast and Wolfman we also like publish like rant or Steph like we also publish like random like 50 year old poets in Scotland who found us on like yeah. duotrope kind of thing um oh cool and so it's it's sort of like it's a it's a niche but it's also like a big tent I guess yeah, no, I hear what you mean. Um, I was talking uh, to Dan uh, in preparation for this episode. Uh, I kind of talked about my own experience uh, of you know Twitter users and uh, and content generators like you uh, and others who I, I kind of initially saw as coming out of like almost like the perfume nationalist sphere. And my my point about it, uh, kind of definitely what you said makes sense. You know, there's dissident uh platforms and there's also dissonant platforms uh but i I definitely kind of think of it partially as um it's almost like that there's a there's a new kind of subculture that emerged from the soil out of what once was kind of a more explicitly political grouping principle like you know everyone you know during 2016 and trump you know was rallied around a certain kind of politics but once you get a lot of people together on the internet uh and making the connections then other aspects of culture that may or may not actually have anything directly to do with politics start to to grow out of that. And that's kind of how I see, yeah, as you said, um, uh, places like expat and definitely apocalypse confidential as well as, is this is, it's like, uh, you know, there was initially like maybe a political reason why a lot of these people came to know each other. And with that came the kind of metapolitical assumptions behind things. But, but now it's actually kind of developed a life of its own as a, you know, as a cultural hub, so to speak. Absolutely. To what extent would you say, um, when I think of Apocalypse Confidential, to me, uh, noir goes hand in hand with your kind of uh, theme and, and vibe. Is um, is that correct? Is that um, generally like you, you aim to publish content and stories that uh, are not, ex- you know, entirely noir, but um, have that uh, uh, that tone? Yeah, I think when I, I mean, that what you you say, calling it a tone is correct, because I've always thought of noir as more of a tonal thing rather than a genre thing. Um, and I'm actually, you know, 
criminally underread in terms of noir. Like, I mean, I've read a little Hammett. I've read some uh, James Kane. I've read a lot of Elroy, but I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily call him. There's a sort of distinction between noir and hard boiled. That like, okay. I mean, I don't really, I don't really know what the distinction is, but I think it's sort of more of an academic one. Um, but I mean, I'm definitely influenced by James Elroy. I mean, I was the host of Elroy Boys, so <laughs> kind of gotta be. Um, and just that sort of like, it's that sort of synthesis, you know, like we're talking about about the Disney thing, especially like with like the like underworld usa trilogy like american tabloid cold 6000 blitzer over that are like that synthesis of like the sort of low street level kind of sleaze and then like the kind of like higher corridors of power conspiring and politicking type thing um and then the kind of realization that like there's like no difference like it's all it, there's no there's sort of no division between the upper world and the underworld that it's all just those one world. Um, and so how that informs, uh, informs our sensibility is just a recognition of that sort of not necessarily demon hauntedness, but just sort of like the general hauntedness of noir and how so much of it is like predicated on like sort of normal people being like, you know, forced to like interact with like sort of like forces that are like far beyond that, what they understand, whether that's like, you know, real specific things, like, I don't know, like, you know, like government conspiracies or whatever, mm -hmm. or just like sort of forces of like, you know, greed or like less for power or something like that. It's yeah, no, that good. makes sense. Go on. Nah. Uh, no, I just was going to comment that, that that I like that definition of noir. It kind of goes even deeper. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes you'll hear uh, sort of, you know, basic definitions of noir is like, uh, having to do with crime and, you know, the, you know, there's no clear cut good versus evil. I think that's all true. But on a deeper level, yeah, I think it stretches toward what you um, sort of unpacked there, uh, that notion of normal people interacting with forces um beyond their control whether they're you know criminal or or conspiratorial organizations or um or, or like forces in the universe even like, like greed or 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 lust or, or or rage perhaps i'm just reminded it's kind of that deeper level of noir where it's not just like the maltese falcon but it's also eyes wide shut and even a lot of david lynch even you know it's like this notion of, of normal people dealing with these these forces that seem to come out of nowhere. Um, I think it's kind of just, it's just a cool definition of noir. Yeah. And one of our big sort of, or besides, you know, psyops, Lee's rag, our big sort of like tagline for this year and forward, hopefully is sort of uh, low lives and high strangeness, which is kind of a riff oh, on the whole, I like that a riff on the whole, like, you know, low lives and high tech definition of cyberpunk. Yeah. Um, because you know i think what we're, what we're trying to grapple at at apocalypse confidential is trying to think of like what the new thing is after cyberpunk because cyberpunk was so specific about like you know anxieties of technology in like the 80s and 90s and you know now we've sort of i mean we're living in a dystopia that they imagine 
the what we're what we're interested now in is like the sort of grappling with interactions of like sort of like the speculative nature i guess because high strangeness in its mm -hmm. strict definition applies to like ufo stuff but it also generally applies to just any sort of like paranormal or like parapolitical kind of thing um like there's yeah. high strangeness around that air force base or something like that um and so like what we're interested in is like that that kind of like commingling of like that kind of like wider and deeper haunting of the world of like sort of like uh hidden forces interacting with low lives and the good thing with like the low lives tag is it's like that doesn't necessarily have to be criminal that can just be like you know like just generally people who are on the fringes however that you know manifests itself and um totally and so totally. yeah we're really yeah. into it's like yeah like just like some like i don't know some like illegal like poachers encountering you know i don't know something out in the woods or like that kind of thing yeah it no seems like that's really like noir and this high strangeness low lives lens of viewing the world we talked before this episode matt and i and in the notes that we sent you that we're kind of interested why the right is drawn to noir and i i think it seems as we we're discussing this it seems logical in that noir posits a, a worldview that is morally ambiguous, where it's, you know, there are forces that are arrayed, you know, not necessarily against you, but they could be against you that obscure, you know, the, the true um, goals and, you know, the forces that move you. And I mean, certainly if you're on the right, that's the way you perceive the world today. You, you wake up and you're like, yes, I know shadowy uh, tech and government and whatever cabals are, you know, controlling me and controlling my life in ways that I don't want or like. Whereas if you're more of a normie or more of a lib, you wake up and you're like, we're progressing toward greater transparency and honesty and a, and a better society. And so it, to me, it makes, you know, perfect sense that, yes, the right would be interested in this kind of more murky view of things where, you know, you uh, are encountering, you know, within certainly in the external world, um, not necessarily entirely malevolent forces, but certainly uh, not entirely good forces and within yourself. Like I'm sure many, many people on the right have, you know, do like search, search their souls or whatever. And, you know, there it's, you know, it's hard to be entirely morally consistent or ideologically consistent in such a kind of crazy time. So I think noir to me, like, and I'm just realizing this right now, I'm speaking mm -hmm. off the top of my head, but I realize it's uh, something that is, you know, probably speaks to quote unquote, our guys uh, very strongly. Yeah, for sure. Well, it, cause it also goes hand in hand with, uh, are seen sort of interest in Lovecraft because yeah, oh, yeah. It's, you know we have this sort of metaphor of like the sort of like deep state being like Cthulhu kind of thing yeah. and then that just sort of like applies to you know that applies out like also then with noir or like hard-boiled stuff where it's like Cthulhu is just sort of whatever the hidden forces are 
And so it becomes a sort, it's like a kind of, yeah, I don't know, it's a noir as kind of like cosmic sort of understanding of the world, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. I like that a lot. Makes sense. Have you ever read any Elmer Leonard? Because he's, uh, he's one of my favorite noir writers. Um, I've read, I think, <laughs> I've read probably, I think, like, Get Shorty. I think maybe, okay. like, That's it, yeah. the Jackie Brown rum, that was, like, rum punch, yeah. right, or something. It yeah, was. that, but that no, was. I haven't read that much, Leonard. Kill Shot is a very good one. I, I think we were talking about that one with Max. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Uh, what uh, Elroy books do you recommend, by the way? Because I, I actually, I've only seen L.A. Confidential. I have not read any Elroy. So uh, how, what, oh, what should I read to get Elroy pilled? To get Elroy pilled, I would recommend, I would probably start with American Tabloid. Hmm. All right. Because that is, that's, I mean, that's more, um, Let's see. Yeah, that's because that's more sort of about like conspiracy stuff. And it's the beginning of the Underworld USA trilogy. Otherwise, I would start with uh, the Black Dahlia because he basically has two big uh, series. One is the L.A. Quartet and then the other is the Underworld USA trilogy. L.A. Quartet is obviously more about Los Angeles. And that one is sort of more, I guess, strictly sort of crime focused mm -hmm. whereas with the underworld usa trilogy he sort of expands it more to be at a national and even international scope mm -hmm. and obviously it's still like crime shit but like it's more sort of it goes into like the territory of like parapolitics um mm -hmm. and so it kind of i mean it just sort of i would recommend everything he's written but like just sort cool. of depending on whether you're more into like the strictly sort of like crime thriller kind of stuff or more of like the conspiracy stuff is should how you know choose your own adventure on that one i see okay. so black dahlia is part of the la quartet which would make sense yeah is it um i haven't I, again i haven't read this but uh is it a is it is it like since black dahlia obviously was a real event does that involve real people as characters kind of thing or is it much more uh, obviously fictional yeah, it, it has, uh, he, El, Elroy is really good at sort of like blending in real people. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, he always waits until after they're dead so he won't get sued for life. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But like, uh, yeah, it, it definitely involves real people. I mean, he, in the book Black Dahlia, he sort of solves it in like a fictionalized way. But yeah, there's still going to be like real people in there. Um, but no, it's interesting, interesting it's a, with yeah, like, because like, because uh, like, I remember reading American Tabloid and like, there was like some character in it who's like a, you know, like a, not even like a tertiary, like a third level character. He's like basically a background character named Chuck Rogers. And, you know, he just makes a couple appearances in, in there. You know, he's like a pilot character. And then I look him up and it, it turned out he was like a real dude who hmm. like got like he was like he he's like now presumed missing because 
he basically killed his parents and like chopped them up and put him in his refrigerator. And then, and like he was had some weird connection to like the JFK assassination. Oh, damn. and yeah, and Elroy. So, and Elroy has him like as like a background character in this book. And it's like, that's like, that's the kind of like interesting rabbit hole and sort of nexus of world and underworld stuff that like I'm into and we Definitely. are into at Apocalypse Confidential, where it's like just this super tawdry, you know murder of parents like very like sort of tabloid stuff and then it's like has like weird connections to like this Real like, life. huge like huge like national level thing like the kennedy assassination absolutely I'm curious yeah, where I love would that you too. class what? don delillo in all of this because i read underworld that was back when I was in undergrad and I had lots of free time. I don't think I could read a 900 page book now, <laughs> but uh, I read Underworld. I understand Libra was also about the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's some real overlap with uh, DeLillo and more noir elements. Yeah, I mean, DeLillo is definitely. I mean, he's obviously like they would strictly classify him as, I guess, postmodern. But I mean, he directly inspired Elroy to write American Tabloid. Oh wow! Okay, Libra. interesting. Um, good, good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know, and yeah. I mean, part of what part of what I've always been wanting to sort of champion is sort of the idea that like Elroy isn't like a mere sort of genre writer. You know, he's just sort of classified as like, oh, he's like a crime novelist, whatever. But like, I've always sort of wanted people to see him as like on the same level as like DeLillo and Pynchon and yeah. McCarthy. Um, where because it's like he, I don't know, they're all get, they're all sort of grasping at like the same kind of like, just sort of like, weirdness of the 20th century especially in the war period um and and so yeah i think they should all be in like the same conversation yeah i think that's a a worthy goal it's kind of interesting how different writers get end up getting characterized in different ways very much as you said elroy is regarded as a crime writer but then Delillo, you know, has this kind of there's a, a sort of academic appreciation of what would be, you know, considered postmodernism, but it's not always the best defined thing. And um, again, as Dan addressed, I don't think either of us are, are super well read in Elroy, unfortunately. But like, uh, but but I would totally believe that that there's a lot more to it than just being crime fiction. In the same way that Don Delillo, is in a book like Libra, for example, comes closer to being a crime fiction writer than than his postmodern reputation uh would necessarily reveal there's it's kind of silly the way writers get uh kind of shoeboxed sometimes yeah and then there's sort of a continuity with because one thing that i think about with delillo is he had like an interview and i forget if he said it in libra but like there's like an interview where he's talking about like you know libra and like the jfk assassination and how he says that like the Warren Commission report is basically something that Joyce would have written if he like lived in like Iowa instead of Ireland or something like that because it becomes this like had like through this like investigation of like you know this like you know national level 
prime basically is like that through that sort of like thing like it beca basically became like this cataloging of basically what like the early 1960s looked like because they would yeah. be interviewing the witnesses and the witnesses of the witnesses and like family and stuff like that and just sort of you get this like snapshot of like how things were back then and like it ultimately it ultimately hmm. doesn't even like connect that much to the assassination but it becomes like this like tapestry of you know life back then and i sort of through that you know sort of comparison it's like you know joyce delillo elroy they're all sort of part of that same like continuity definitely yeah, no that's that fascinating sense. yeah actually this is um not on the outline but i'm just kind of thinking of it now um a possible book recommendation for you and for apocalypse confidential fans although maybe you're already familiar with it have you heard about this kind of new um, book? Uh, what, what's even the word? New investigative series of books. There's two of them about uh, the Zodiac Killer that came out last year. Have you heard about this? I don't think so. Uh, highly would recommend. I'm trying to get the the writer's name is Jarrett Kobach. He's um like an LA based writer who actually self publishes a lot. But um the, this book he wrote on the Zodiac, which is called. Um, how to find it's called how to find zodiac it was published about a year ago it was part of a mm -hmm. there, there, there it was published in um at the same time as another book called motor spirit the long hunt for the zodiac uh, two books um they're actually self-published although their findings ha um, have been taken seriously uh by la magazine and other sources i myself read these books and found them extremely compelling as uh to the the suspect they point out as as zodiac which um no no one else has uh pointed to before i came across this guy first on Brett Easton Ellis's podcast um definitely generating some buzz but what's what's fascinating about it is less so i mean i'm i am interested in like true crime and like unsolved crimes like zodiac but also um basically the way he deduces his suspect is by um, looking at all the different cultural references and very specific cultural references to comic books, to movies, and other things that the Zodiac put in his letters to the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, so it's a very thrilling read, but also, and I'm like a completely a believer in the suspect it puts forward, but also it's like a really, really good uh, encapsulation of the craziness of uh, California and the Bay Area in the 60s and this kind of sociological portrait of the different um, events and the different cultural forces at play. I think you, from what I'm hearing about uh, what you guys do at Apocalypse Confidential, I think you'd probably really, really enjoy it. Highly recommended to to you and to anyone who's listening who might be interested in such things. Oh, this looks really cool. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, mm -hmm. I highly recommend. And again, the writer's like, you know, he self-publishes. He's kind of like, I mean, I'm not going to say he's like us. He's just like us. But like, you know, he's, <laughs> he's not like some, you know... <laughs> uh high, you know a uh, highfalutin degree holding npr darling he's like a you know working writer all the best yeah, stuff it's is sort of... happening in the shadows in yeah. our spaces yeah it sort of reminds yeah. it's like the whole idea of it's like if you know if you want to solve a crime you have to solve the society or whatever the sort of like holistic approach mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah i dig that definitely yeah and the reason he pu i'll shut up about this in a second but the reason he published it in two books is because one is like very technical like this is this is like the evidence i have for this guy being zodiac and then the other is much more the um like uh you know 
nonfiction piece about uh, a certain period of time and the cultural context. It's very interesting. Nice. I'll have to check it out too. Yeah, definitely. It uh, and I imagine the thesis is different than the movie Zodiac. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it kind of rules that out. But <laughs> interesting. Maybe maybe a legal case there for that dude. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. So resident life enjoyer. We wanted to dig into that, and uh, I mean, it seems like you guys have been going for a little while now, and. It uh, it seems like maybe when it started you weren't yet a uh, a co-host, Jacob, <clears throat> but uh, you you are now a, a co-host of uh, RLE, right? And I think it shares like the same like SoundCloud and Twitter account with like a previous project that Will had called uh, No Future. Which, okay, like that was like the one that like uh, Geo and others were uh, guests on. And oh, okay, I was, yeah. And I yeah, was a guest a couple times. And then he sort of revamped it as Resident Life Enjoyer. And so it's uh, Will and then me and he are co-hosts on that one. Um, and I don't know. I think, obviously, Will would be better to sort of get into it. Um, and actually, he would be you, – you guys should have him as a guest on this podcast at some point. Um, Absolutely because you know it's sort of definitely his darling and i think his sort of idea of it is that like you know no future was sort of him more being like in the kind of uh how he would put it like post-punk goth kind of phase whereas resident life enjoyer is sort of more of him you know coming out of that and becoming more of like the sort of new wave so like yeah. from joy division to new order kind oh, of oh totally um yeah and yeah and like i mean i think my way of sort of approaching it is it's sort of like there's a whole idea of like resident life enjoyer it's sort of like a kind of faux like masonic lodge kind of thing like we are the exalted like whatever like wood choppers of washington or some kind of lodge kind of thing um hmm. and like my thinking about it is you know, you have you everyone's seen that like atrocious comic of like let people enjoy things. Um and the way that's sort of presented is like in defense of like multi-billion dollar movie yeah. franchises and as a way of sort of like shutting up like any sort of criticism. But yeah. I think so far in our episodes, we've demonstrated that like the true way of enjoying something is by critiquing it and analyzing it and dissecting it um and so we sort of i guess our mission with that or my perception of our mission with it is to sort of offer a kind of alternate way of enjoying something hmm. absolutely like the way you and the episode that i listened to to get ready for this i uh, i had recently seen barry linden so this made uh, i was interested to listen to this episode and it made perfect sense, but it was your most recent episode with uh, Aldis uh, about Barry Lyndon. And yeah, as you're describing the process, it was, you know, very much you're analyzing it, you're analyzing its strengths, its weaknesses, and uh, truly enjoying it, I suppose, in that way that, uh, say, an Indian enjoys the whole animal. <laughs> 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 By, uh, 
you know, feasting on all of his parts. Mm -hmm. And it, um, yeah, I mean, you brought up a lot of, I, and that's one of another reason why I selected it is like Barry Lyndon is a great study in masculinity. And that has been a recurring topic on New Right. And um, yeah, so like the, the way you dug into, I believe like the episode started off with um, one of you, maybe even you, uh, Jacob, referring to him as a boy boss. And oh, I thought yeah. that, was, that was the perfect take on him because like he is like exactly like that kind of like, like well, we, when you think of a girl boss, you think of someone who like kind of um, is like, you know, fake it till you make it like put on the trappings of authority and eventually like people will recognize you for the boss you are. And that's like exactly <laughs> what Barry does throughout the whole movie. He's like in every situation, he's just like, you know, scurrying and scampering around. I mean, he, he the... definitely leans in. He leans in and falls <laughs> over, but then he basically, the whole story is him basically like failing upward and just sort of like managing to like, dagger his way into like you know by the end of it having like a country house and stuff like that um yeah he's a boy like boss the, yeah the <laughs> ultimate story of just making it work he leans in so hard he falls over because he doesn't have a leg at the end that's right, that's right. <laughs> it uh yeah no there's a lot of great stuff that you brought up in there like um so I, I really like the distinction between how I mean, you, I remember you were the one who brought this up, how he has a sort of low level animal cunning, as opposed to that, like he is a trickster, but not in that house of cards style way where he's thinking like, you know, 20 steps ahead. He's like literally thinking like one or two steps ahead throughout the entire movie. And I mean, that's its, it's charm. It's just like he's just, you know, uh, get, you know, scraping by by the, the seat of his pants throughout the, the film. Survives by his like wits and guile and just sort of being able to like, you know, like the sort of genius of the low level cunning isn't how to manipulate events to your sort of ultimate like satisfaction or benefit, but by sort of like reacting after the fact. And yeah, I mean, he's, it's a, yeah, it's like a fascinating portrait of that kind of uh, animal kind of instinct. Hmm. Absolutely. And he has, um, you mentioned, uh, or one of you mentioned that he's a bit of a himbo and like, yes, he does have that look like he's like kind of like um, stereotypically good looking, but not necessarily very expressive, like the way you, you might um, like like sometimes when I see a, a certain type of actress, I'm like, yes, she's pretty, but like she's so pretty she's plain. She just kind of like lacks character. And like that's kind of like, you know, as you see him like, you know, moving around, it's like yes, he does seem like kind of uh, vacant. And I, I think to an extent that was intentional. Oh, for sure. Well, it's like, I think people, critics at the time, and I think some still do, it's like, oh, they criticize Ryan O'Neill because it's like he's not a very good actor, but it's like, it's sort of like the whole point of the character and why Kubrick cast him is because he was this kind of, I mean, he was like vaguely 
thinking thinking man but like he was still like i mean he was like a like a you know hot commodity in like 1970s hollywood <laughs> and like the whole so the whole point of casting him as this like you know guy in like the 1700s 1800s is like to like underline the fact that like you know i mean it sort of underlines the whole like low level cunning thing where it's like he isn't this like deeply expressive brooding character actor he's like a sort of like real like surface level you know mile wide inch deep kind of like you know star kind of deal yeah like one of my favorite i, I mean like his seduction of lady linden that was hilarious too he just kind of like walks up to her and he's like i'm gonna kiss you now but uh that that was funny but even funnier to me was the initial seduction of the um I guess she was a uh, a German or, or Czech, um, not quite peasant, but like farmer's wife who he like stumbles upon. And like, it's like, it's very obvious that he's going to make a play for her. And then he like, he does in some like kind of like gentlemanly, but not so gentlemanly way, like says something like, you must uh, be uh, very lonely with your husband away. <laughs> and, and like, and you know, it, it worked. She's just like, yeah, yes, I actually. <laughs> it's got, he, he's got that PUA game going on. That's right. That 18th century PUA game. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, there was, it was the libertine era. So that's right. As, as you can tell from, as you mentioned on the episode, the uh, syphilitic scars on their faces that they would hide with the, the black dots. Yeah, I, oh, that, wow. all that stuff is like, in, like crazy. And I think I sort of like talk about it in the episode where it's sort of like, this is like the world or allude to it in the episode where it's like, this is the world that like, Tom Cruise falls backwards into in Eyes Wide Shut because so much of like so much of like the kind of you know masked orgy kind of thing is basically like the sort of elite trying to like you know do their own return with a V to yeah. like the kind of like libertine aristocracy of the period of Barry Lyndon and so there's yeah. a sort of there's a lineage there Gosh, yeah, leave it to Kubrick to to get those details in. Yeah. In terms of uh, black dots and everything, wow. The full life cycle, Barry Lyndon to uh, eyes wide shut. Hmm. And then the, the eyes go wide shut. That's right. <laughs> dum, dum, dum. <laughs> uh, so for um, resident life enjoyer, I was looking through the the you know list of guests and it jumped out at me so and this is something that we've talked about a bit but uh Gio Ortant, Nick Dollinger, John Pellick, Brendan, Kevin and Brad, uh, Kevin Kautzman, Brad Kelly of Art of Darkness, you of course uh, we Matt and I were discussing it, and you know, and obviously, you guys are all close to the uh, the TPN sphere, perfume nationalist sphere, and uh, we thought this uh, a name for this scene or whatever could be the uh, the weird right. Yeah, I mean that 
definitely cracks. We are definitely weirdos. Um, <laughs> and it, I mean, it, it also tracks for, you know, like sort of all that, like sort of pulp and noir stuff that we were talking about earlier with Apocalypse Confidential, where it's like, you know, weird, like, you know, thinking back into like the 1930s where it was like weird tales and like yeah. weird menace, you know, that the genre where it's always like the sort of half naked girl you know, tied up on a, you know, stone altar with like someone in a hood with like a crooked dagger kind mm-hmm. of like, so that weird menace thing. And then like sort of weird fiction of like Clark Ashton Smith and Lovecraft and so forth. And so, you know, because we're all tapped into that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, weird, weird, right. Definitely makes sense as an appellate. Yeah, no, I mean, we, um, we kind of thought of it uh, both in that sense, but also um, this kind of like cultural sphere that uh, that we're in. It has, as we discussed earlier on the episode, a lot of people who are uh, politically right wing, but then a lot of people who are just not comfortable in there. There are artists, artistic individuals, but uh, the kind of progressive liberalism of the entertainment and publishing industry doesn't suit them. And so as a result, they, they find themselves in this space as well. And so Matt and I both went to the Devere Ball and we were, you know, <laughs> speculating that a lot of people in this room are, you know, you know, not really right wing by any sense of the definition, despite the way the media would paint the event. Uh, they're, they're just kind of like, well, people looking for a party, but, but also people who are just like creative and mm-hmm. don't uh, don't fit in in a segment of the entertainment or cultural industry that is censorious and uh, just like not fun. It's kind of like that dissident dissonant uh, dissident dissonant um, dichotomy you laid out earlier. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I was kind of saying to Dan too, like a lot of my favorite podcasts, and I'd even put like Art of Darkness um in that category um and, and maybe even some people would, would view our podcast this way where you can you can almost forget that you got here through politics for you know episodes at a time because the the topics are so um so so multifarious and like not just just often not directly related to to politics at all even with those metapolitical assumptions we're having um brendan luso on as you know uh soon as well and i mean i think his uh Tales from the Mall and then his um, iso- sensory deprivation chamber play is kind of a good example of that, where it's something that came out of uh, a sphere that had a political grouping principle, but it's so it's it just so apolitical and, and so enjoyable in its own right. Yeah, it's sort of like a, I don't know, it's post-political in a way, and I guess it's sort of jumping the gun because obviously we still have, you know, like the current sort of regime or Mm -hmm. paradigm in place but like i guess our sort of you know the mentality that you're sort of laying out it's sort of like you know we've we've talked about politics to death and we all Mm -hmm. you know we all know the direction things need to go and we all sort of you know and people are still welcome to discuss things on that level but like at this point we're sort of more interested in like talking about like what comes after that i guess yeah no no and i i think when i i mentioned earlier like finding a lot of a lot of guys like you and, and other 
uh, people in the general sphere, definitely the perfume nationalists, as Dan mentioned. It was all like 2020 uh, when I when I found it, and uh, my my online and my Twitter experience has improved immeasurably since then. I mean, it was kind of a no fun, or it, it got old fast before when it was all about politics. But yeah, now I think there has we all have been engaged in this process of thinking like, yeah, what comes what comes next? Not because anything is resolved politically, but just because there has to be some some outgrowth of that. And, and yeah, if anything, things have gotten, you know, somewhat worse, perhaps politically there, there, things are, I, I always, I think I probably said on this podcast before that things are just kind of rather dull and uninspiring on the political platform right now, you know, we'll see what happens in 2024, but there's a real need, uh, you know, for these kinds of spaces. And I think they've been one of the great flowerings of, uh, <laughs> of the Trumpist, uh, you know, online sphere, shall we say. Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, it's like, just sort of like thinking about, you know, you know, thinking about what the sort of Blauergeist brand is. It's like, you know, I mean, I feel like I used to do like threads and talking about politics and stuff. But like, Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays, I basically, what are my, my three main tweets are basically just woke up from a nap, 30 o'clock, and then just me watching some like weird random like, 70s like sleazoid like you know vampire porno or some shit like that yeah and it's like you know it's sort of like posting you know posting sort of past the political stuff i guess definitely yeah yeah it's good to know like where uh you feel most comfortable and like post like there are enough people who do the kind of politics thing and you know frankly it's um you know, it's not very fun. I yeah. find it's like, much more. I mean, like, okay, it is a little bit safer as well. I'm, you know, in less danger of losing my Twitter account. But uh, aside from that, like, you know, it's just kind of like some of these things are just very obvious, and you know, you, you state yeah. them, and you know, they're the, the obvious rejoinders to it, and um, it's it's so much more fun sometimes yeah. to say things in ways that are. Um, more circuitous more and... circuitous and i mean there's only so many of us who can post like courtesy arvin style tweet threads and, and things like that and, and it's much more interesting shall we say to be a, a resident life enjoyer you know i, I feel like that is kind exactly. of like a a theme um definitely to posters like you jacob and um you know we could get uh we could get all like college critical theory about it and be like well actually uh, to to post about simply enjoying <laughs> your life as a man in America is <laughs> political, and, they, and I say that as a joke, but but you know, there I think there's something to that too. I think there is like a little bit of a uh, I just want to grill man type of mentality. That's the boomer thing. We're not we're you know we're not necessarily boomers in that way, but you know you know what I mean. Like in posting about these niche, um, you know, uh, cultural interests, maybe maybe there is some some shred of. Uh, not not identitarianism, but you know, a shred of sort of standing your ground uh, for for what you what you like to enjoy. But but overall, yeah, no, it's it's much more. It's not directly political and much more interesting for it. I think. Yeah, tweeting about smoking cigars indoors as a man is a revolutionary act. In I mean, yeah, where's the line? I mean, it, it kind of is. Like I, you, I'm if if you have, you have a girlfriend, I'm surprised you get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, hey, well. I, I would I would not get away with smoking my cigars indoors. <laughs> I remember I tried it actually in uh, in college. I so like I I never had siblings, and I you know went to you know college obvious 
obviously, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and so I'm, I'm in the dorm. And like this was in 2004. So people weren't as crazy about smoking. But I light up a cigar in my room. And some guy, like a you know, big uh, football player type guy, comes to my door. He's like, you got to put that out. It's fucking stinking off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh, shit, man. Okay. Allah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, it, it is a revolutionary act smoking cigars indoors. <laughs> it's like that. You just gotta have that, you know, Arnold mindset. You gotta be, you know, you have to think to yourself, I'm ballsy, I'm a stud, and you just gotta do it, brother. That's right. <laughs> it um yeah, there's something really fun about like you just it's like it, it feels good and like it's a lot more fun than smoking a cigarette it's just like i don't know it's like a performance almost. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well i mean the the stogie buzz is definitely real like i mean i've jokingly semi-jokingly tweeted about how it's like you know cigars are a you know like a hallucinogen or something like that but i mean they really do like affect you in like a way oh yeah yeah interesting yeah like when you're like done with a cigar like well you've like i mean you're not inhaling really much but like you like feel feel it way more than even after like you know a whole bunch of cigarettes it's a it's a more um it's, it's there's more of a build to it there's less of a rush more of a build and it can, it, it's more of like a atmospheric put you in a headspace thing than a, than a cig i find <laughs> yeah for sure are you a cigar man jacob is that part of what we're talking about here i, I wasn't sure oh yeah no i yeah, got yeah. into cigars um sort of midway through 2020 because my bapa my grandpa passed mm -hmm. away and he was a big cigar guy like his his like you know white pickup truck reeked of like cigar smoke and uh you know, we had there was like some like leftover cigars from like his like collection. Yeah. Um, not super good ones, but I mean, there's a charm to that where it's like you know, where it's like on one on one hand, it's good to have the expensive ones, but like when when you're just getting like the three dollar sticks, that's how you know you're really into the Stokey game. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, I've I, I've smoked Swishers with uh with tobacco rather than yeah. weed, so you're not. Uh, yeah, I I definitely get it. <laughs> and. Yeah, and so then, like, had, like, some leftover from his stash and, like, basically just, like, smoked it in commemoration with him, of him. Mm -hmm. And then ever since then, you know, I've been hooked. And, like, my place is, like, literally, like, down the street, like, only, like, a few blocks away from a cigar store here in where I live. Um, and so it's a... Uh, it can be a dangerous habit because you know these these sticks can get pricey, and the guy oh, yeah. at the store, it, the guy at the store is a great salesman, and so yeah. you know yeah, he, right. he can easily sell me a pen because he can sell me you know these uh, sticks that are like you know rack up, but you know everyone needs their vices, everyone needs their habits. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I do agree with that. Uh, no, it's uh, it's, it's when you have a habit that's uh, or a vice that's somewhat, uh, you know, controversial from a CDC type perspective. Um, I feel like it's even easier for someone to be a salesman because all because like you feel like you're in on it with them when you go into the shop there. But 
but uh but but moreover uh, i do appreciate although i it's, pro- it's probably not always the best thing because i i'm not one of these people who actually think smoking is good for you or anything like that but i do appreciate this kind of undercurrent online where uh on like the online writer dissident sphere whatever you want to call it where there's this uh um pro tobacco sympathy because it's it's just yet another thing where the you know every everywhere else in the world pretty much is is vehemently against cigarettes and against smoking against nicotine tobacco etc but um yeah. but definitely the online right is a, is a bastion of like um actually here's x y and z ways in which things are good for you uh, again not sure if that's actually the best messaging overall but uh but it is always fun to me i love the uh cigarettes over weed type memes you know what i'm talking about like where it's like yeah. the bell curve <laughs> yeah. yeah well it's sort of like i mean the whole i've never really i never really care for the whole like sort of like actually you know tobacco is good for or cigarettes or cigars are good for you kind of thing mm-hmm. because i mean i guess i have a bit of like the nihilist death drive in me where it's like no the reason they're good is because they are bad for you yeah um, no it's true that's a, that's yeah. a, I prefer that outlook. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's kind of like, well, like eating, uh, you know, like a delicious bacon cheeseburger. Like, I guess there are some people who will argue like, actually, that's good for you. And it's like, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, like, it's maybe it's not as bad for you as some other things, but it's not actually it's good because it's good. And mm-hmm. so that's the same like reason with cigars that's the same reason with like all of these things drinking it's it's good because it feels good and you know hopefully it's bad if you do it too much and you have like you know issues that arise <laughs> from it but um yeah no it's we like these things because they feel good exactly yeah. yeah well and it kind of goes to i mean i think there's probably a way we can like sort of tie it in with like the whole noir mindset because, oh yeah, you know, and they're all smoking argue, chimneys. You Go know, on. sorry. Yeah, arguing, um, you know, the whole sort of argument that like, oh, they're good actually, is kind of it's just kind of like the inverse of the sort of I guess woke scold kind of they're bad so don't do them kind of thing. Whereas like the true sort of middle path, I guess, or whatever, is sort of being like it's like, well, I mean. Yeah, it's sort of, I don't, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm grasping at what no, I, I what think I, I think know what you mean. Yeah. I think Walt Disney said it best, right, when he was like, I need hmm. to have some sins. And, like, I yeah. think he recognized that smoking is a, a sin in some respects, but it's, like, it's something that you, you need to have, that stuff that you enjoy. And uh, we will, we don't know what other stuff he was referring to. Right, right. But, uh, well, and then smoking he, he, has that, he had that great line that's like, Walt Disney quote unquote doesn't smoke cigarettes no i do oh yeah yeah no that's interesting, interesting. yeah i'll take another like um wait way, way too much of a reach here but i'm just gonna go for it if it sounds too retarded we can cut it out but it's almost like the way that cigarettes are regarded in american life is is, is almost like the way donald trump is regarded in america or like the right way to view trump is the right way to view cigarettes and that it's not that you know he um Obviously, he is kind of this gaudy rich guy, but what's cool about him is that he owns that. He's tr- it's transparent what he is. That's his appeal. So the right way to yeah. view cigarettes is also like that. It's like no, they're bad for you. Well, I don't think Trump's bad for the country, so it's not a perfect metaphor. To be clear, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a Trump fan. I think both of us are, here are at New Right, but uh, you you kind of see what I mean. He's this aspect, and you know, Trump himself also hates cigarettes, so it's it's really not a perfect metaphor. But yeah, it's just one of these things. For. 
it's just one of these things that's been so demonized by um, the powers that be in the media, et cetera, that you know exactly what it is. And, and there's something liberating about um, owning that and still liking it, um, you know, despite all of its uh, supposed yeah. flaws. Well, it's sort of like embracing <laughs> the ambiguities and complexities of sort of like noir America, you know? Exactly. It, it, yeah, yeah, there, yeah. And there is something noir about, I think, both of those sentiments. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are ambiguities and complexities in Trump. And mm -hmm. like, yes, you know, we uh, some of us choose to embrace him anyways. And I think, yeah, it's a similar dynamic with um, stuff like cigarettes. Like it. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> there's, there's some, you know, it's not necessarily something that's good for you. Maybe you don't want to smoke it all the time, but um, mm -hmm. there's something to be said for it. Right. And it's like it's, something to be said for, you know uh well i i don't know if i want to say some of this <laughs> something to be said for uh the way trump acts in many uh situations right. even even when it has a sort of destructive result it's like it's like it's like that moment in uh noir in a noir plot line where it's like you have to choose between something that's going to hurt you in one way or something that's going to hurt you in another way perhaps and you you know you, you there's a nuanced it's a morally gray decision but you got to make it that's sometimes that's that you just yeah. gotta grab life by the lapels and <laughs> oh I thought you were <laughs> and uh you know just tell it who you are yeah so yes yeah. it's treat, our, our treat life does. like the junior associate you know exactly <laughs> boy boss vibes yeah throw him Right into the meat grind. <laughs> no, no. That's right. We, we've never done that. <laughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to get back into, I realized that I missed it when I was going over Barry Lyndon. And I think it's it's kind of important. It's a callback to one of our epi earlier episodes. The uh, distinction between formalized violence versus wild violence, which is one of like the, you know, the, biggest takeaways I had from that episode. And so in the context of Barry Lyndon, it's um, he is in 18th century English society. He is in the British army. The, um, the way in which you fought in those days was to like essentially like march at each other on an open field and shoot until one side falls down <laughs> the most. And so there's a very formalized violence. Dueling, which figures heavily into the movie is formalized violence. Uh, par excellence especially at the end where he was dueling with Bullingdon. Bullingdon is his um well he's the son of the lord who was married to lady linden who um uh barry linden displaced and he he married her got her money and so obviously her son uh little lord Bullingdon, <laughs> is uh <laughs> he's he's not very happy with uh barry linden and for you know for good reason and so there's a number of duels in the movie, you know, famously, they have an, a duel at the end between uh, Lyndon and, and uh, Little Bullingdon. And um, so the way the duels were, were fought in those days, I mean, there was um, the kind of like 10 paces turn and shoot, which seems like kind of more, um, if not fair, more just kind of like reasonable. But the way this duel was fought is you flip a coin and the loser has to kind of like uh, stand and bear it while the other person aims and fires at him and like yes pistols were much more inaccurate those days but like nevertheless you are standing in the way of gunfire and just hoping it doesn't hit you too badly so that's like it's a kind of like wild scenario and nevertheless it was like totally like this is just part of the way society works 
and it was sanctioned and it was just like, you know, totally normal. But he gets in the most trouble, Barry Lyndon in this movie, for thrashing Bullingdon, for uh, humiliating Barry in this uh, kind of recital event with other aristocrats around. And uh, and in that instance, he was probably, you know, uh, you know, very justified, like uh, Bullingdon, like really had humiliated him and he was furious and he just starts beating him. And it's but it's something that absolutely ruined his reputation. And so in those days, there's a real distinction between formalized violence, which is OK, and wild violence, which uh, which is not. And this kind of like gets into a lot of stuff we've talked about on New Right, which is kind of like, to what extent is it more masculine, more more manly to like play by the rules, even though like, you know, it, it might be easier to, to break the rules. You still have to play by them to be honorable or is the more honorable thing to be, to be wild, to, you know, and, and I think, and this calls back to an episode we did with the good old boys where we talked about this and they themselves were divided on it. I believe with, mm -hmm. I think Merrick was the one who said if the, you know, the stakes are high enough. And I think they both agreed on this point, actually, if the stakes are high enough, yes, you are justified by using whatever means uh, necessary to achieve your goals. Yeah, um, I don't know where I don't know where to chew on with that, but yeah, it's definitely yeah the whole idea of like formalized verse is wild violence. I think then you kind of see that how how uh you know maybe like our current situation in terms of like I don't know like anarcho like tyranny kind of thing where yeah. it's sort of like the the third sort of third sort of thing is then like sort of state sanctioned violence where it's like you know everything is like fucking falling apart like you know we have like all these like brain derailments and stuff like that and i don't know where i'm getting at with this but i mean the the sort of system itself is a uh act of violence i guess and um formalized it's the the system yeah. and it like you know you're expected to so like yeah you're expected to ride trains that are gonna fall apart <laughs> you're expected to yeah. do like all of these things that are like there's a, a formally dangerous dangerous element in it like you're going to commute to work and you might get uh you know brained by a hobo like that's just part of like daily life in certain parts of America these days. And, um, but you yourself like will be, you know, like your behavior will still be judged very harshly. So like if, you know, if you see like some like wild eyed hobo, like eyeing you up, like you, you can't, you know, attack him until he attacks you. And so like that, I think that's like a very good example in some respects of like, we have this system of, you know, you have to play by the rules. And then like once like, you know, the rules have the threshold has been met, you can, you know, you can be violent yourself, but uh, but not until then and only in that particular situation. So, I mean, not to get too political, but I mean, obviously there's stuff that's been in the news with all sorts of 
um, you know, civilian, uh, some people call them vigilantes, other people call them, you know, just people standing their ground. So there's all sorts of instances where this, I think, is at play, where like there are certain situations where, you know, you are like given the okay to be violent, but until that point, you, you cannot be. Yeah. At least yeah, that's my and- thoughts on it. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess the takeaway is we need to bring back dueling. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 20 paces. Well, I mean, they kind of are. I mean, they have, you know, you, there's been cases where it's like they don't, you know, like fry them because it's like mutual combat. Or I saw that. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I mean, uh, we joke about this, but BAP actually a, a lot on Caribbean rhythms. We'll talk about bringing back dueling, and I mean, I I won't uh, give a definitive opinion, but uh, there's something to it. There's something to that kind of formalized. Um, it's kind of like a, a middle path a little bit, where it's like it, it's not the total. Um, it's not it's not the what we have now, which is in some ways is is a society that's uh, is a little too anti it's a little too antiseptic until all of a sudden you're the victim of violence you know what i mean you're kind of depowered as you talked about dan even though there's violence around you um but it's also not the the war of all against all it's that it's that formalized middle path that i think people find disturbing in a modern context that such a thing would actually be sanctioned but i think when you think about the dynamics of violence and the way that it underlies society and the way that society is founded upon violence the notion of a formalized duel actually makes quite a bit of sense um you know I, I say that you know sitting behind my computer it's not like i want to get challenged to a duel and that'd be happy to go out and do one or anything but uh it's 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 an interesting thought experiment for sure well i mean and then it's like the whole thing with the dueling that like the sort of dueling culture is then you know the, and i think it was one of us maybe it was me who talked about it in that Barry Lyndon episode is it's like well then a you know a dueling society is a polite society exactly right because I was say that the whole yeah. the whole infrastructure of like etiquette is basically because prevent people from you know being in a situation where a duel would be necessary so you know Matt it's like you don't have to worry like you don't have to worry about getting into a duel as long as you know you like sort of obey the etiquette and like rules of and niceties that we've sort of established yeah so yeah like southern honor cultures uh like kind of black male honor cultures um I mean, i'm sure like you know if, if you're to t- well southern honor culture is kind of a descendant of the the scots irish and the like mm-hmm. the borderlands up there like um yeah i mean i think like in general i think of those cultures as being like pretty courteous until it's not so like very friendly very engaging but then like you know oh if you step over the line then suddenly it's it's on so um yeah not like whereas let's say a casual like new york city dinner party or something people might like outrageously insult other people and it just be like oh well you know that's uh that's how it goes it's yeah. that's just that's like him being him <laughs> uh, yeah i'm told that there's countries on earth and possibly even in europe and eastern europe maybe hungary i don't know the details on this but where these 
where where there are still not not legal duels, but there's still enough of an honor culture that it's a real issue that, uh, you know, there's people who feel duty bound uh, to kill in certain instances. I don't know all the sociological details, but I, I, obviously these types of things do live on um, beneath the outside of the sanction zone, shall we, shall we say. I would believe that from what I know about Hungary, because yeah. I, I know a little bit about it from Matt, Matt Forney. And my uh, my girlfriend did a Fulbright there, so yeah. she um, she spent quite a bit of time there. And uh, yeah, it does seem to have that kind of genteel um, honor culture still. Hmm. So uh, yeah, the next uh, New Right episode live from Budapest. Hmm. <laughs> the duel. Yeah. <laughs> Matt and I duel. Well, I was on Art of Dark yesterday. They were um, Kevin was had some choice words about our competition, our jockeying for status uh, on the uh, books and literature podcast rankings in Cyprus. So, keep oh that yeah, going. yeah, so they're beating us, right? <laughs> By well, yeah, he but he said uh, if we ever if we ever usurp them, um, it would be it would be war, is what he told me. <laughs> so maybe maybe you had a duel, but yeah, well, yeah I know that. Um... Well, Brad at least seems like he's kind of woodsy, so mm-hmm. I feel like he'd yeah. know how to how to handle himself out there. <laughs> so uh, another topic we wanted to get into was uh, I was listening to your Tales of from the Mall episode with uh, obviously Brendan, but also Howling Mutant. Hilarious episode, just you know you and you know two other hilarious guys mm-hmm. and you started talking a little bit about the horror movie genre and mm-hmm. that got me thinking about horror versus noir and how in, uh, and I know Jaws is one of your favorite movies. And I, I think uh, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I would class that as a horror movie of sorts. And uh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. No, scared. And, <laughs> and so like in horror to me, the classic horror is like it's a tale of good versus evil, usually with an external force that is evil and an ex- good, and it's an external battle between good and evil. Whereas noir, good and evil is much more murky. It's not clear exactly who is good, who is evil, and much more that like it's like within each of us is good and evil. And so, mm. to the extent that there is a battle between good and evil in noir, I feel like it's a psychological or internal battle. And mm-hmm. so, like, they're two very similar in that, like, they're both kind of scary in a way. But I feel like horror is uh, a much more clear-cut moral universe, uh, explicitly so, than noir. What do you think about that, Blauer? Or uh, rather, Jacob? Yeah, uh, for sure. And, I mean, it sort of gets into, I guess... Because what the thing that we talk at Apocalypse Confidential is we're interested in the underworld, whether that's sort of demonological or cr- criminological. And so whether that's like, you know, the crime noir stuff or sort of more occult kind of horror thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it just, you know, contra uh, noir. Um, but like, I do think about sort of I guess maybe one frame of reference for this is sort of like noir versus uh, giallo, 
um like sort of like italian kind of like proto slasher kind of thing yeah um because they both have pretty similar roots you know obviously noir comes from like you know dime store pulp paperback kind of stuff and then the giallo they come from um you know obviously because giallo is yellow and italian so it comes from like the sort of yellowed page like oh, you know dime store pulp yeah. paperbacks and stuff and like basically like i don't know the maybe there's a distinction without much of a difference or something to me because ultimately like at the end of the day the difference between whether something is crime thing or a horror thing is just sort of like how long the camera focuses on the victim screaming i guess yeah yeah um and because it's like you have you do have like a lot of noir that go into like very sort of like horroristic sort of modes like you have like what is the one called there's like one called the prowler from like 1951 by Losey or Los, I forget how, I think it's just, Lo, yeah, Joseph Losey, which is a very sort of like, like sweltering kind of like claustrophobic noir thing about like a voyeur. And then of course, and then it's sort of like as like a dichotomy is then you have a different movie called The Prowler from 1981, which that's just like a straight up like slasher movie. Um, and there's no obvious connection other than the fact that they're both called the same thing. Um, hmm. and then you have movies like M, you know, by Fritz Long, hmm. which is like yeah. basically like that's you know a horror movie more or less about like a child murderer, but it's also sort of very noir like, definitely, and it like under, fine, yeah. yeah, and it underlines the fact that it's like so much of noir is like rooted in like the German expressionism of like the twenties, like, you know, all that sort of like lights and shadow and fog and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know. I think I would actually sort of, I guess I'm talking myself into counter arguing what you're saying. I think there is definitely just, there's always been a strong like horror current to noir. It just is sort of like, presented in a different way yeah i mean i think i i think i agree with that more or less we're talking about with dan um leading up like i I think that they're kind of parallel genres that that you know it's just a different aesthetic there's kind of a different intentionality behind them the you know the horror movies intention is typically to scare the noirs the noir movies intention is typically uh you know maybe more you know, maybe more procedural, maybe more philosophical, although absolutely both horror movies. Horror movies can also be very procedural and philosophical as well. So there's a plenty of overlap. But I think that like the sort of metaphysics, so to speak, are not so different. I think that they're, that both noir and horror are inherently sort of um, uh, like dualistic, uh, good versus evil type of genres. I think that oftentimes in horror movies, it's kind of a clear cut like uh e- evil is a is a very like um like the, the essence of evil is boiled down to one representative whether as an external force or something from within human nature that is then countered or that then must be escaped um and then in noir things it tends to things tend to be a lot muddier <laughs> the waters tend to be a lot muddier in terms of who's representing what but nevertheless i do think they're kind of both 
dualistic. Both of them take good versus evil and that struggle very seriously. Uh, you know, ne neither of them are like morally relativistic genres in any sense. Um, but both well, a good take, sort of yeah, a good movie to sort of look at is I mean, Psycho, which obviously mm -hmm. is sort of like the you know godfather of like the slasher genre in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. But like, I mean, I think a lot of people look at it so much as like a horror movie and they look at the shower scene and like the, you know, Bates Motel, all that sort of gothic kind of stuff. But like a lot of people forget that like so much of it is based on like, you know, Marion Crane, like she like steals a bunch of money from her employer and to like go go off with her boyfriend or something oh, yeah. like that. It's a good and then So like it starts off with like a straightforward like, noir crime thriller kind of like you know that's like the sort of MacGuffin of it and then it's sort of like everything becomes like sort of like startlingly clear cut because you know this you know this woman this character has like these sort of like murky motivations and like sort of like this there's this whole sort of uh I guess intrigue about like this money and like the getaway and all that stuff but then ultimately, none of that matters once she steps into the steps into the shower and gets like stabbed to death, and then right. you know it becomes a completely different thing. Um, and so it's sort of like I guess whereas noir kind of revels in like the complexities of you know life or whatever, uh, horror is much more about like this. Clarity of like, all right, that person has a knife and is coming at you, and you don't have one, and that's what life is. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. There, it's it, there's no, there's, yeah, there's less of a contradiction. There's no like, uh, yeah, they're complementary is what I'm trying to say. They 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 deal yeah. in different levels of experience, as you said. You know, how long does the camera focus on uh, the victim screaming? How long does the camera focus on the blood? Maybe that's as much the difference as anything. Yeah, and there's certainly instances of complex protagonists in Harbor as well, protagonists who are not uh, clearly good or clearly, you know, evil. So, yeah, I mean, there's a certain murkiness in both genres, I would say. Absolutely. So we were uh, we were wondering uh matt matt and i didn't know between each other uh, at, at what point did you decide to um uh transition to, ah. to, <laughs> I started transitioning. To, uh, <laughs> to uh move from uh flower guys to jacob everett uh that started i think i changed it last year mm -hmm. um maybe more recent but i mean a part of it is because of like you know doing apocalypse confidential and it's getting sort of more reach and it's have it's sort of getting more like real world i mean as much as that i mean everything has sort of been infused with online so it's there's no real like yeah touch grass yeah. world anymore but like in terms of like you know just generally sort of real world maybe out out of our sphere kind of thing is a better way of putting it mm -hmm. um exposure and um and you know like i a part of it is a pride thing because it's like i 
Like, you know, I look at Apocalypse Confidential and it's like, well, our guys didn't make that. I did. Yeah, um, no, I think I think what you're saying. And it's like, yeah, and so it's like Jacob is my real name, and Everett is like a family sort of name. And but it's like it's you know, so it's real enough where it's like there you don't feel like the sort of disjointedness of person versus persona. Yes, um, I see what you mean. You know, like yeah, I've made similar I... turns within my online career. Um, yeah, go yeah. on, Dan. Yeah, that's why I chose Dan Baltic. My first name is Dan. The last name is not Baltic, but like I knew it was like it. This is a a gnome de plume that I can kind of like stand behind and feel like it's like if not my family name, it's like you know I can claim it as my own and feel like a certain amount of accomplishment as I see, um, you know, uh, writing and accolades or whatever accrue to this this name. And I remember yeah. before I started this, a friend of mine, uh, then a good friend, he um, said something like, well, why would you even want to do any of this if it's not under your real name? Because no one will know it's you. And it's like, well, that's a good point in, in a certain sense. But I mean, we exist at a certain moment in the culture where like, unfortunately, I, I can't have all of my friends and family know it's me because, you know, of various career and whatever complications. So like, I don't know, I feel like we've we've entered a, uh, a moment in the culture where our alter egos uh, are very important. And like, uh, you know, we live a certain portion of our lives through our, <laughs> our uh, alter egos. I mean, I, I definitely agree, but kind of as Jacob alluded to, I think there's something to there's something to the middle path, right? I've I've long this has been less of an issue in the past like year, but online there was actually been times with BAP and others getting into it about whether or not anyone should be anonymous, whether or not anyone should be public. With a lot of people having pretty firm opinions on either side, like no, everyone should be public, no, everyone should be anonymous. I've always been, well, I've always been a believer in two things: one, that you know mileage varies and people should make their own decisions, and and others should respect that. Ha! Huh, this sounds a little bit like gender politic, politicking here, but you get what I'm saying. Um, but then the other thing I've always thought is that there's something to the the middle ground of it all, where yeah, you you are sort of. There's some indication, you know, the way that Dan, that you are open about that you're a lawyer and that you actually built a lot of your online joking about that. There's something to not hiding who you are, not playing. You're not playing a character. You're just, um, you know, taking some precautions. So like it's not because uh, yeah. there is a difference, obviously, between your online presence and, and your real life. That's that's fine. That's healthy in a sort of more performative sense. It's all good for us to have our own little. Uh, personas that we're crafting, but I do think there's a middle ground where you can still give some indication as to who you are, which and take credit um, along with that, uh, while also not being um, totally public or totally anonymous. Absolutely. To me, it's it's the not playing a character thing is more important than the sort of like whether someone is like a non or not. Like, I mean, I'm fine. Obviously, you know, people people do what they got to do. But like, to me, the thing that's sort of weird and annoying, it's like when someone is just like, and I don't have any examples off the top of my head. I'm not going to, I'm not talking shit about anyone in particular, but like when it's just like, you can just tell that like straight up, their like online presence is completely different 
from who they are, you know, in the quote unquote real world, yeah. that becomes the issue because that becomes like, I mean, that becomes like a gradual, like sort of fracture of like the self. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, and that's also a part of why I just decided to go by Jacob Everett is because it's like, you know, everything that I, I tweet about as tweeted about as Blower guys is like stuff that like, I mean, I talk about, in real life anyway exactly yeah like i'm i'm it's like i'm that person anyway so like there's really no there was really no point in having the sort of blower guys you know nomenclature mm-hmm. no that makes a lot of sense i just yeah i remember like it was like you and uh brendan who used to go by gorgonzola man you know it was kind of all yeah. at the same time I remember a bunch of people uh started started going by less online type monikers and some of them Base stocks, so to speak, and it, but but it made sense as like a as a as a as a development of where this scene was going. Again, as you said earlier, Apocalypse Confidential is hardly a political organization anyway. Uh, so I think it makes sense to come uh come out from behind the the mask a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Because in sure. like previous eras, like this is how you met people. You met people through your mutual interests and to like, you know, being entirely anon, that's no fun. You want to meet the people who you connect with. Absolutely. Well, I think that takes us through our list here of uh, our outline, but uh, we're, you know, happy to stay on if, uh, anything else that you guys want to get into yeah i had i actually had one last i'll let um jacob definitely if you have any other things you want to bring bring up or questions you want to ask us by all means i had one last callback to make to an earlier bit of the episode not sure this will come across as a question or this will generate much much discussion but kind of a light bulb went off when you're talking about the lovecraft of it all and the 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 cthulhu mythos and the influence of that on apocalypse confidential Kind of reminded me a little bit, and I didn't have the, I couldn't quite formulate the words when this first came up, so I, I think we just moved on, but it reminded me a little bit of the conversation I was having with um, Brad and Kevin yesterday on Art of Darkness about William S. Burroughs. Um, we were talking, we talked about Burroughs, we talked about all his many um, proclivities and interests, many of which I think probably are, you know, noir in their way and, and in line. I'm sure you guys talk about Burroughs on Apocalypse Confidential sometimes, but Specifically, we were talking about we read the, a piece that I think Nick Land had had written in the '90s for the um, the CCRU. I think it's called the Cybernetic Something Research Unit. Yeah, uh, called the Lemurian Time War, uh, and it was uh, it was a very strange and trippy piece about something about Burroughs and the lost con- continent of Lemuria and these ancient lemur people that he may or may not have sincerely believed. It was a very like kind of trippy thing like that, but uh, it, it really struck me that um lovecraft was also interested in sort of pseudo geography and lost continents like lemuria and atlantis uh, and it really and also to hear you talk about lovecraft earlier and some of the other writers uh and even like the, the expanded elroy uh, underworld universe it just sometimes feels like uh uh it sometimes feels like there, there's almost like this undercurrent of you know perhaps fictional but perhaps not completely fictional reference points that go across like a whole network of different writers from Lovecraft to Burroughs, perhaps to Elroy. Um, and it's, it's, it almost feels like the, it's like this alternative, um, 
alternative sociology that like may or may not have any basis in reality, but that's like shared, like a shared subjectivity almost, or like a shared expanded universe of different different writers. Um, that's not a question. I'm just wondering if that, does that resonate at all? Is that like kind of in line with the Apocalypse Confidential uh, aesthetic? For sure. And it's sort of like a shared, yeah, shared mythos, shared. It's not even because it's like you're talking about like the lost continents and stuff. It's like almost like, it's less soci in like our sort of preoccupation with the underworld. It's less sociological and maybe almost more like sort of like geographical. And yeah. I mean, this ties into our next special is Gaia horror, which is sort of like, you know, like <laughs> yeah, the way I would put it is like body horror, but for geology and like mm -hmm. bio a biology or oh, ecology yeah. and stuff like that. And so there, yeah, there's this sense of like, a hauntedness of space around us and like the sort of one thing one thing that i always sort of harp on is like parapolitics you know this study of like conspiracy and stuff like that is to like history or current events as like urban exploration is to architecture yeah and just like like this sort of like the sense that like you know, these, we always sort of like talk about like these smoke filled rooms and these corridors of power as in like a metaphorical way. But like, one thing I'm fascinated by is that it's like, no, they're physical spaces yeah. where these sort of plans are hatched. Like there is, there is a room somewhere, probably at like the, you know, some like Texas oil billionaire's house. There is a room where they, schemed the kennedy assassination for example yeah yeah there is like a there is like a room where they you know take any sort of like conspiracy and there's like there's an actual like sort of physical space attached to it and that there are actual doorways and like that you can like sort of go through and walk down the halls of where you are sort of like confronted with that like sort of like you know the this hidden madness of the twentieth uh, and twenty first century. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That's a fa that's a fascinating image, and maybe that's a little bit of a maybe maybe it's a stretch, but maybe it's almost a little bit of a uniting factor between uh, your work now and the work you were engaged in with Bathus Gang last time that we spoke, where you know it's that you were you were dealing with rooms there in an aesthetic sense, and 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 still you know I guess there's that interest even within um, the more noir parapolitical angle um you know still uh the interest in in space and the relation of spaces with that which is done inside them persists perhaps absolutely yeah the room where it happens exactly so, yeah. yeah hamilton was lin-manuel miranda's pill um <laughs> yeah it's like i mean so it's sort of like the one thing i wanted to bring up is like to me the image and this goes what we were talking about with like spaces is the image that I have for Apocalypse Confidential is this anecdote that like I read and posted about like a while ago where during sort of like usual, like, I guess like sometimes they have to do like rescue exercises in the catacombs for the Parisian police mm -hmm. because, you know, chorus will get lost down there. So they like every once in a while just, you know, do usual like like sort of regular like exercises in there to be acclimated to it. So during these regular exercises, Parisian police 
in the catacombs found a basically makeshift movie theater there with like a functioning bar and like functioning like phone lines and sort of before they got there they heard like audio recordings of like snarling dogs to basically ward them off and um and like there was like a collection like basically there was a dissonant uh collection of like sort of like symbols and stuff like the hammer and sickle was next to the swastika and stuff so no sort of discernible like ideology to it it was just sort of complete chaos and so they see this functioning movie theater and this bar and phone line and stuff and they're like all right this is weird and then they go up back out of the catacombs and then after a while they manage to get the next day they get like some expert who uh you know i guess for whatever reason to like go down with them and the next time they were there the phone lines were cut and uh there was a sort of note saying do not try to find us Jeez. and yeah. to me to me that is a sort of perfect encapsulation of the kind of tone that we like at apocalypse confidential where you have like the police you have criminality you have like dissonant uh ideology you have like sort of like literal underworld stuff and you have like sort of movies and everything like that. And yeah, that is, that is the apocalypse confidential worldview. And then our excellence. Yeah, that makes sense. No, no, absolutely. And what's wonderful about that stuff, you know, whether or not it's shady interests, um, theoretically operating, um, it, it's wonderful to kind of re- refine, rediscover mystery within the world. Cause I think that's, something that is is so often missing you know in the in the overly rationalized world and and especially with the internet with the, the internet obviously is is the starting point for a lot of us and kind of going down these rabbit holes but nevertheless there's a sense that 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 all information is now available there's so much less mystery in the world now than there used to be is what i'm trying to say but um it's almost like with with projects like apocalypse confidential it's kind of rediscovering um those caverns uh, of the unexplained uh, and the uncanny um and that's something that i think there's a real uh need for now and also that we don't necessarily want to be found like the like they didn't by the people who uh we don't want to be found by like um we were talking about the vanity fair article recently and Mm. how it would be a mixed blessing to be to be mentioned in any of these you know, uh, taxonomies, uh, mainstream taxonomies of the quote unquote new right or dissident right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, frankly, we have the listeners we want to have and we, we'd like to have more. But I mean, we don't want to have so many that we have listeners and we have readers that we don't want. Yeah. So <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting, you know, situation where like you um you know, we're we're all kind of like a, a private club. Yeah, that's right. Private stogie club. <laughs> we're all we're all smoking cigars and watching movies <laughs> in the catacombs with our buttered rums. Yeah, damn right. What uh, what is a buttered rum? By the way, <laughs> buttered rum is uh, hot buttered <laughs> rum is it's. Rum, obviously, a spiced rum, and then you add hot water, um, unsalted butter, 
and then like cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, oh, and wow. just stir and yeah, it sounds a, good. good. Yeah, yeah, winter drink. Yeah, that does sound yeah. good. I'm I'm not a big mold wine fan, but that sounds good. I must say. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, I think that about brings us home. Oh yeah. Unless yeah, there's uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you for uh, coming on, uh, Jacob. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, um, Apocalypse Confidential, everyone should be reading it. Everyone should be listening to Resident Life Enjoyer. <laughs> and um, yeah, please, uh, you know, uh, take the, this chance to, you know, tell anyone where they should go to uh, check out whatever you uh, you want them to check out. Yeah, everyone should go to apocalypse-confidential.com. Follow us on Twitter at atcon uh, underscore mag. And on Instagram, we're also there at apocalypse underscore uh, confidential. Our next special, we recently dropped, I guess, yeah, recently, a couple weeks ago at this point, we dropped our love special, hmm. that which included a review of Dan's uh, Nut Cranker by Brad Kelly. Everyone and, should read it. <laughs> absolutely. And our next special is going to be for Earth Day. I mentioned it earlier, Gaia Horror. So if, yeah. you, if you know, sort of body horror, but for, you know, the Earth and just sort of the sense of the ancientness of the Earth freaks you out, then submit and read for that special. And then we have a couple more specials down the road. We have Dust, which is John Ford and the Atomic Frontier. So that's basically like... uh fusion of old west stuff and then like atomic age like marginalia like basically imagine a imagine the las vegas skyline in the 1950s with a photo with the uh marquee of the winking cowboy at the pioneer club and in the wow. background you see the mushroom cloud that's <laughs> that's the aesthetic for that one and then in november for the whatever anniversary we are at for the kennedy assassination we're doing our Bad Back Jack Thanksgiving Spectacular, which is all about sort of like deep history and deep politics, sins of the family, sins of the nation, you know, whether it's left wing, right wing, you know, whatever wing, it's uh, sort of all part of one, you know, atrocious bird. And uh -huh. uh, so that should be a fun one, too. Awesome nice. stuff. I look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, the uh, the revenge of the sky god, I guess, against the, the right. mother. Um, and we're and I forgot we're getting into book publishing. Oh and, hell yeah, we should have mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yes. we're getting into book publishing. We are going to formally drop our sort of announcement and submission guidelines uh, on Monday, so tomorrow. And our first book is going to be called "The Book of" by. Uh, a mysterious author named Frank Keith. And mm. it's sort of like a collection of like sort of weird mondo, like extreme increasingly disturbing crimes, like linked with some sort of religious fervor. Um, that should be it. That's coming out May 8th. Um, awesome. Great. Yeah. And yeah, then we're going to do poetry collection uh, called pale townie by our poetry editor, Tom will. That's sort of him riffing a bit on like the poem that's in Pale Fire. 
And we don't have a release date, you know, nailed down for that one, but that'll be sometime, obviously, this year. And then we might have a couple slots where we're like one or two other books. So, you know, we're just getting the press, you know, started this year, but we're going to start cranking them out. Awesome. awesome. No, we can't wait to see, you know, what you guys yeah. put out. And we know other idea. people too. Like when uh, people have uh, heard that you guys are pivoting to publishing novels, like and you know other works, uh, there's a lot of interest, and oh, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of hunger for this. So uh, yeah, I have no doubt you are going to be a wash in submissions. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I I look forward to uh, to you know picking them up, reading them. Well, yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. It uh, was great having you on, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great to be on. Thank you so much. much.